Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at mission.org and let's chat. A couple years ago, it would have been crazy to say that you're buying your eyeglasses or mattresses or TVs or books or whatever online. And it's still a little bit crazy to say that with wedding dresses, but I think that's exactly why I was so interested in it because it felt new and different. I think that that's the making of a really good startup, a good, crazy idea. Making the switch to online shopping has been easier in some cases than others. Buying laundry detergent online sight unseen doesn't feel quite as high risk as a larger purchase, like say a car or a house. It makes sense then that certain industries have been slower to fully embrace the e-commerce experience. Bridal is one of those industries, but Leslie Voorhees Means thinks that it's time to shake things up. Leslie is the co-founder and CEO of Anomaly, an online-only custom wedding dress company. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Leslie explains why she thinks her model is going to be the one to disrupt the market. Thanks to a blend of tech and human stylists, all focused on customization and personalization, as well as taking control of the supply chain, Leslie says that Anomaly has found a way to solve many of the pain points brides run into during a traditional wedding dress shopping experience. Thousands of customers agree so far, and as growth continues, Leslie says her eyes are set on new technologies that she believes will lead to a sea change in the world of e-commerce. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey everyone, welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is Stephanie Postles, your host. And today we have Leslie Voorhees on the show, co-founder and CEO at Anomaly. Leslie, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're really excited. Uh, So where are you located at right now? What are you up to? We are in San Francisco. So the company was uh, founded and is headquartered here, but we have uh, a couple offices around the U.S. and the world. We've got our customer service stylist operations in Scottsdale, Arizona, and then we've got a team that manages our supply chain operations in Hong Kong. Oh, very cool. Hong Kong sounds awesome. See, I'd love to hear a little bit about Anomaly then. We're kind of jumping into it quick, but yeah, talking about offices and Hong Kong, it sounds like it's expanded quickly and grown from where you started it. So I'd love to hear a little bit of the background there and kind of what brought you to Anomaly. Yeah, for sure. So I I, uh, I never actually expected to be uh, founding a company and was not expecting to be in bridal. This um, idea uh, for the company came about through my own frustration when I got engaged and shopped um, around for my perfect wedding dress and had a really, really hard time finding, um, I had this picture of uh, a dress that I really wanted and couldn't find it in boutiques and was pretty horrified by the prices. And my background is in mechanical engineering and uh, manufacturing. I've always worked for big companies, um, 
started my career at Nike and fell in love with the factory environment and product development and being able to create real physical uh, products and was working at Apple at the time that I got engaged and um, was working on the launch of the Apple Watch and was in China quite a bit and did a little bit of research because I knew um, coworkers of mine had custom clothing made, um, mostly men, uh, shirts and suits and things, and ended up finding uh, Suzhou, China, which is outside of Shanghai, which makes most of the world's wedding dresses, 80% of the world's wedding dresses are made in and around um, this like amazing supply chain hub Mm -hmm. of expertise and craft and worked uh, directly with one of the workshops there when um, when I was out in China for for work and um, was just absolutely floored by the the price but also the quality and the levels of customization I could pick out everything from the lace to have it you know be custom tailored to my body and mentioned it to a couple friends and almost immediately started getting uh, request for for orders before this was even really a company, and um, realized pretty quickly that other women felt you know the same frustrations that I was feeling around not quite finding what they want for arguably you know the most important garment that you're ever going to mm-hmm. wear. So, um, and then an- another kind of interesting insight besides just the virality of like those original orders was. The first, um, you know, couple dozen uh, requests were coming from women that said they wanted something really special and really different and really unique. And in reality, the the dresses looked very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, like almost, but people were like almost ordering the same dress because wedding dresses are uniquely low variable. It's it's white. It's ivory. It has lace or no lace. There's limited silhouettes. There's limited styles. It's less. Uh, it has a longer product life cycle than than a lot of um, garments and fashion, and um, so I, I there were the the seeds of this idea for mass customization that was really exciting to me as um, you know as an engineer to to think about how we could scale this to to give uh, tons and tons of options to brides, but on the operations side be really efficient and be able to to have the benefits of of scale. Um, by thinking about these modules that can be customized. So the skirt or the um, neckline or the straps or the sleeves, um, et cetera. So we, um, you know, we've, we've thought about that a lot as we've grown the past. So that, that was about three years ago, a little over three years ago that we um, started and since then have grown to serve, you know, thousands and thousands of brides and are building um from the the technology side, a way to be able to visualize um, the the dress in a um, in an easy and fun way, given that we uh, don't have brick and mortar uh, shops. It's amazing. Yeah, it's very interesting hearing the story of your background of being like, I need a wedding dress, and actually going to the district in China where they're made. I can't think of many people who would solve their own problem like that. Was there any surprises when you were going and meeting um, these companies there and yeah, thinking through like, hey, this could actually be a business or any uh, findings when you went there that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I think I think one thing that was really stark that I noticed right away was I was the only foreigner um, in this area. It, it was very apparent that Chinese women knew that this is where, you know, where you can get really high quality, almost like haute couture type of um, like custom garments. But I was like, the only the only foreigner, the only white person walking around getting a lot of stares. But I think that was really representative that there was um, a secret that was being uncovered. I think that, that was how I was thinking of it was 
you know, that this is, this is something that can be untapped. And, um, just given my conversations with friends and then friends of friends and then friends of friends of friends as the idea started growing was women really want to be able to tap into that, but need a trusted, um, a trusted source. There's a lot of, um, you know, direct from China websites and horror stories about women ordering a dress. And then, um, when it actually shows up, it's low quality or not what they were expecting at all. And given, again, this is a, a very emotional, important purchase, um, having, having someone that you know and trust on the ground, um, I thought was something that was going to be really important and, and that ha- has remained important the, the entire history of the company. So, and then I think the other, the other thing that was surprising was just the um, breadth of quality at Suzhou, in Suzhou. It was, you could get everything from a very, very, very inexpensive, cheap uh, wedding dress for a couple bucks, uh, all the way up to dresses that were almost um, as much as uh, it would cost in, in America and wide ranges of quality. I remember when we were, I vetted um, probably a hundred or so uh, factories when we were first setting up. And it was pretty apparent the ones that didn't um, take quality as seriously. There was one factory that I remember where everyone in the factory was uh, smoking cigarettes. Oh my gosh. It's not something that you would want in a high it's, quality. That's, um, that's like the reviews on Amazon partner. where people <laughs> are like, hey, it smells smoky. Like, I wonder why. Now we know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So that one was an easy one to cross off the list. But then on the flip side, um, there were a lot of really, really sophisticated um, entrepreneurial factories that we uh, met with that I think could feel the shift that's happening in bridal, which is that it's, it's one of the, I think, last verticals that hasn't really been disrupted by an online presence. Um, it's still, uh, wedding dresses are still 95% brick and mortar in the U S and, you know, a couple years ago, it would have been crazy to say that you're buying your eyeglasses or mattresses or TVs or books or whatever on online. And it's still a little bit crazy to say that with wedding dresses, but I think that's exactly why I was so interested in it because it felt new and different. It was, um, you know, I, I think that that's the making of a really good startup, a good, crazy idea. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. It seems like there could be a lot of D2C opportunities that go directly to the source like you did, because a lot of them people are coming online, they want to, you know, not go through someone else to sell right now. Is there any other areas that you can see going direct to actually help with the business model or, you know, maybe friends or like mentors in the industry where they kind of realize, hey, there's a lot of opportunity if you go, you know, directly to the factories and see how they make it and develop your own relationship instead of always relying on, you know, a wholesaler or drop shipping or whatever it may be? Yeah, I have to credit um, my internship when I was in business school. I was really, really lucky um, enough to be a part of the core founding team of M. Jemmy, which is direct to consumer um, Italian, like high, high quality Italian footwear. And I was able to go with the founder over to Italy that summer, wow. which was the coolest internship ever, much more glamorous <laughs> than than uh, some of the factories in China. But um, wow. they, I want that internship now, actually. Yeah, Can I exactly. sign up for that? <laughs> it might be the coolest job I've ever had. So, um, but it was, it was uh, really, really interesting because they had set up relationships with um, these Italian uh, craftsmen that make shoes for, I mean, the factories we saw were for Yves Saint Laurent and um, Prada and Valentino and the same hands that were making those shoes had extra capacity to, um, you know, make high quality shoes that didn't have the designer 
uh, label and then designer price tag and being in, you know, tapping into that direct to the workshop and direct to the craft, um, you know, idea was something that I got to see that MGM was doing and, and is apparent all over, you know, e-commerce with, uh, I know away luggage, I think started with, um, you know, making partnerships directly with, um, with the workshops and, um, I'm trying to think of another, oh, the mattress, a lot of the mattress companies are, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are these, uh, pockets of expertise and by being able to, um, sell direct to consumer, it, it cuts out the middlemen and obviously cuts out the, the, a lot of the cost. And then also for us, especially being able to centralize, um, stylist operations and uh, tech and our finances and and all of that uh, allows us to scale um, nationwide without having those costly retail footprints and then also we can scale the um, experience from from a customer experience side. Very cool. So if you're looking back now on picking factories and workshops to work with directly, what were some of the lessons that you took away from it where you're like, I would do this over again, or I did it this way and it worked out really well. If someone were to try and start this process from scratch. Yeah, well, I would say definitely no uh, cigarettes uh, present. In the <laughs> step <factory>. one. <laughs> yep, step one. All right, um, everyone, that's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the secret. Um, no, I think um, I, I think also the the appetite for international partnerships, and we were lucky because we we started. Um, you know, really small with just a few orders and a, a lot of uh, partners, especially in China, require minimum order quantities to be able to um, to produce with them. And, and we found partners that were aligned with our vision of entrepreneurship and, and scale, but we really had to sell the vision probably similar to fundraising and, and selling the ideas to, to venture capitalists to get um, funding. We had to sell the idea to the workshop managers as well to buy in, into this idea because we did not have massive amounts of orders at the beginning. And so definitely um, alignment on uh, a strategy of customization and a strategy around scaling through tech and having tech enabled, you know, uh, operations to be able to to get big, bigger and better. Um, that helped a lot to have, um, to, to be able to find some partners that were really, really aligned with that vision. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. It's kind of like, when you're looking for, you know, a contracting job or something like that, the people who apply maybe aren't the ones you always want versus going out and actually sourcing the exact person that you want to work on your project or employee or whatever it may be always seems to work a little bit better. Yeah. So for Anomaly, when I was thinking about, you know, I've, I've had a wedding before, I've bought dresses and I was thinking, oh man, that seems like it could be pretty hard to do direct to consumer, you know, online because of the measurements and making sure it fits and, you know, wanting to feel the fabric and all that. How can technology replace that kind of experience that makes the consumer more comfortable with buying something so important online? Yeah, it's a great question and a great call out. It is hard. It is a hard um, hurdle. We have a really, really high bar of trust. This is a really, really important garment. I think what what's really exciting to us is that a digital experience solves a lot of the pain points for brides shopping experience in in brick and mortar boutiques by offering one, a, a much better price. So high quality um, brick and mortar boutiques, you know, you you wouldn't bulk at a, a 
price tag from the average is like in the two to $5,000 range is where the, the bulk of the dollars are in the market. And mm-hmm. um, designer dresses can cost $10,000 or more. And, you know, by, by being able to cut out the cost of, um, of the shop and then also having um, uh, a stylist where we're able to offer a much better price. So our average dress right now is right around $1,700. Um, That's really good for custom. Yeah, we, we think so too. And then um, another pain point that we hear uh, over and over from brides um, is is around inclusive sizing. So the average American bridal boutique doesn't carry the average American woman's size, which is a bridal size uh, 14, size uh, normal size 12. And, um, you know, the, the inventory is expensive and um, boutiques have a limited set of gowns and um, that gets even smaller when you think about um, sizes that can include plus size women. And so by making our, our dresses made to order, made to measure, we're able to you know make the pattern to fit the woman's body, regardless of whether you're a sample size or up to a size, I think we've made up to a size 32 before. So um, that I think addressing the, the inclusive sizing has been um, a big unlock for us. And then the I think the biggest advantage we have is we can offer dramatic advantages with customization of the design because we can bring together any element that a woman wants. So more often than not, we hear brides say, you know, I, um, I tried on dresses. I have a Pinterest board with all my dream wedding dresses. And I love this element of this dress and this element of this dress. So I love this skirt and I love this top and I wish I could make it long sleeves or I wish I could swap out the lace. And so from a supply chain perspective, that's exactly how we're thinking about building every single dress is with those modular components to be customized. And because, because we don't, have to um, hold inventory. We can offer literally billions of permutations of designs to, you know, bring together all of all of the parts of um, different dresses that um, that brides want. And so, you know, we're we're giving we're really empowering brides um, to to discover and and then also create the exact product uh, that they want. And then that that tech is supplemented by um, a human component, which is still really important to have, um, you know, a stylist on the other side of the phone to bounce ideas off of, talk about pros and cons of different design elements and, um, you know, really reaffirm the, the decisions because, um, yeah, because, because it is hard because she's not, not trying it on um, in a store, but the, the question is always the same, which is, um, I want this dress to fit. I want this dress to look beautiful and flattering on me. And that is a problem that we can solve with tech and with data. You know, we're collecting hundreds of thousands of uh, custom measurements right now and developing IP around pattern making and fit and have um, a fit guarantee that you're not going to have any more than $499 of alterations. And if so, we'll cover, we'll cover the cost. That's something that we just launched um, last month. And so, you know, we, we feel confident that um, we can tackle the um, challenges with not having an in-store experience, but actually offer much, much more value through better price and, um, and sizing and, um, and fit. And then also those, uh, that customization element. Very cool. So when it comes to entering in data for sizing, how do you have the user do that? Do you have the stylist work with them? Because that seems like it could be a process where it could be painful if you're, you know, measuring your wrist, measure your, you know, shoulder area. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of spots that you'd have to measure to know how to get an exact fit. So how do they 
how do you work with customers on that to where they don't bail? You know, like 50% of the way in, they're like, whoo, this is a lot of work. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we benefit because women are really committed to getting this garment right. So it's, it. it shows up in lots of different areas. For example, we have a really long intense survey. Um, and we have a crazy, crazy high completion rate. Like if it ever drops below 95% completion, we're, we're thinking something's wrong with the website because women are, this isn't just purchasing, you know, a pair of pants or, um, pair of earrings or something online. This is your wedding dress. So women are really, really okay with sharing a lot of data. So that, that shows up with measurements too. Um, we, so process wise, we send a little fit box, which includes, um, physical, uh, swatches of our fabric, because that's something that we found is really hard to digitize the color. And then also being able to, to touch and feel the quality and what the, what the fabric feels like. And that includes measuring tape. And then we've got pretty in-depth uh, instructions on how to have someone um, take your measurements, whether that's your fiance or a friend. Um, we also have a connection with local tailors. Um, so if, if women want to go in and get measured by an expert, we cover the cost of that. But what we've seen over time now is actually we've, we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these points of measurement. And so our system can algorithmically flag if um, something looks off too. So oftentimes, um, you know, we'll come back to a bride and say, hey, this, this measurement doesn't quite look right. Um, and it's a typo that we were able to catch. And so by just having that back and forth, and then also this, this foundation of data to um, ensure that the, the measurements are, are accurate um, helps a lot. And then in the future, I mean, We've seen a lot of technology pop up around digital measurements. Um, I'm hoping someone else can solve that problem and, it, and then we can fold in the technology to our process um, because it is, it is for sure a challenge. Um, what we're thinking more about is once we have measurements that we feel really, really good about, how does that translate to the pattern making and being able to create a 3D physical garment that will fit the... <laughs> you know, a, a 3D object, which is a woman's body, which is hard. But that that's something that um, I think in particular, our, our investors are really excited about because that once we figure out that part of um, the problem, that, that can be applied to other things besides wedding dresses. That can yep. be applied to, to garments just overall for women. So thinking a little bit longer term about how we can, um, you know, build some really cool IP around, um, around women's fit. Yeah, that's awesome. I was just thinking about how nice it would be to, you know, have someone take a quick video of you doing a spin where then it has all your measurements there. So then you can actually virtually try on the dresses and see how they look, because that seems like it'd be hard to know how something would look on your body without actually seeing it, you know, on the computer screen or something like that. At what point did you realize like, hey, we're getting a bunch of data. We probably should have you know, incorporate machine learning or build an algorithm that helps with either recommending styles or, you know, like you said, checking the fits or the measurements that the potential bride was putting into the tool. At what point were you like, this is a lot of data, we need to actually implement some type of tech. And how'd you go about that? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I would say it's probably the way we um, figure out anything else at the company and probably other startups will uh, empathize with this as well. It's like once things start breaking, that's where you're like, oh, okay, we got to fix this. It's like yeah. the leaky faucet or the balancing plates analogy. It's um, once things really start to wobble, it's like that's where time and attention and, and resources um, need to be applied. But 
Um, another, uh, another part of this is that I've always really, really admired, um, startups and D2C startups in particular that have this differentiation with tech or data or supply chain or operations. So in particular, I really, really admire um, Stitch Fix and, and Rent the Runway, which Stitch Fix um, famously like have, has said they employ more uh, data scientists and engineers than they do merchandisers. And they're a fashion company. But yep. I think they recognized really early how much you know, leaning into that data strategy can help them scale and get really, really good at what their, you know, core value proposition is, which is, you know, similar to ours in terms of personalization. And so we, um, we've always, you know, like tried to, to follow after their ways because they've been so successful. And so that's been on my mind since day one is like, this is, this is going to be an important part of the, how we can scale successfully. Yeah, Stitch Fix is definitely a good example, but it's amazing how much data they use and how they are working to perfect every single fit of clothing and using all the feedback they get every single second to make it better and better. Yeah, and it's not, what I love is it's not data just for data's sake or tech just for tech's sake. It's like really core to how, you know, they're, how they're delivering personalization to their customers and they see it as a, a big competitive advantage, which I think is why they've been one of the few successful e-commerce exits. Like you haven't seen that many um, in D2C, I think, because it is really hard, but I, that's that seems to be a really, really smart way to differentiate your your company and your brand. Yeah, completely agree. Do you have a, a model that you're looking at right now where you're like, we're going to spend this amount of time thinking through the tech and the future of, you know, where our industry is headed to get ahead of it. And then this percent is spent on the product right now. Or how do you think about balancing those two initiatives? Yeah, I wish it was. Um, I wish it was that organized. We're not <laughs> probably not quite there strategically yet, but um, it's always it's always been um, these three core pillars of our of our business, which is the um, tech and the visualization, really around solving these uh, frustrations around visualization and measurements and fit, and um, developing a really amazing digital experience through um, through our tech. And then second is our human um, part of the customer experience, so our stylist team that um, is just, you know, really smart and empathetic and um, helpful and I, I think necessary to make this big decision, this big purchase online. And then third is our supply chain operations and being really on the cusp of vertical integration and being super, super involved in our workshops on the ground to make sure that we're um, maintaining a really high level of quality and that we're covering all the areas of ambiguity that comes from, um, you know, making custom, uh, custom garments. Yeah. Awesome. So right now, when I think of the wedding industry, I think of the big brands, the major players, how do you think about going about building a bigger share of the market or getting a bigger piece of the pie when you're competing with companies like that? Yeah, it's it's something that we've thought about since day one. And because Bridal is so unique, I think we're really uniquely suited to disrupt the market. So as I said earlier, Bridal's still 95 plus percent um, in brick and mortar. And then the other funny thing is that it's really fragmented. So the biggest player in the market is David's Bridal, which is a, th a third of the market. And then the rest, there's no one with more than a 1% market share. So it's just super fragmented, independent, um, usually mom and pop uh, boutiques. And the crazy thing about David's Bridal is 
um, they're failing. They filed for Chapter 11 in November of 2018 and have been, um, you know, repackaged and sold off to a number of different private equity firms and just continues to be really, yeah, really, um, you know, I, I think struggling because of their because of the um, costs of their retail, they have over 300 stores in the U.S. and salespeople, and um, you know they. I think it's a model that's not going to work long term, and so we have our sights set on taking um, that big of uh, a share of the market, um, similar to David's bridal, and we think we're really well set up to do that because because we're doing it in a direct to consumer way. We're not you know, burdened by the, the cost, the uh, cost of, um, having a retail presence. Yep. Yeah. I read a really interesting report about the David bridles of the world where once retail locations are bought by PE firms, that there's a very high correlation of them going bankrupt because it's of just not how, a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think Toys R Us was the same way. And there was a whole list of them. That was actually the, um, I think it was Oak, Tree or Oak Hill um, that that took David's or took um, Toys R Us into liquidation, and they were the same ones that just purchased um, David's Bridal in Eek. late 2018. So it's not, yeah, it's not looking great for them. But it's it's wild that there's still one in every three wedding dresses in America, yeah. and and no one else is really uh, stepping in to um, you know to take them on. And we're going big here. It's not, um, you know, the, the answer I think is not to just open up another, another boutique or another online boutique. I think the, the answer to, um, unlocking a big portion of the bridal market is around price and customization and fit, which is why we're, you know, spending a lot of time and a lot of dollars on, um, building tech to, to support that. This is, you know, it's which is hard, and I, our our investors understand that. But I think it's also why we're a great venture opportunity is because there's um, you know a lot yet to be discovered, which is what we're working really hard to um, to build right now. Yeah, completely agree. When it comes to your marketing efforts and you know getting that market share and growing bigger, what kind of tactics do you use right now to either convince the buyer who's maybe very skeptical of buying online to come and try you guys out and making it kind of a, you know, easy process for them just to get involved versus the people who you can tell are like, they're in it, they're ready. They've already, you know, paid the stylist fee. They're here. Like, how do you think about advertising to those two different types of audiences to make sure they convert to hopefully customers? Yeah, it's for us, it comes down to transparency, um, which is very authentically anomaly, especially in the early days when we were first starting out. It's like it's not trying to make us bigger than what we were. It's like acknowledging, hey, we're we're a young upstart, but we're going to work really hard to make your wedding dress perfect and and being really upfront about the challenges and being upfront about the questions that are in brides' minds. It doesn't help to gloss over the fact that you're not going to be trying on the dress until it arrives. But mm-hmm. you know, uh, t- having an honest conversation with our customers around that um, has always helped. And w- what also helps is that we've got a lot going for us in terms of um, you know the again the price and um, being able to to bring together 
all these design elements that you could never find in a store. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's addressing concerns around, um, what, what customers might be thinking of. And then also just education around this, this new experience. And what's cool is, uh, I think our, our authenticity really shines through our social. So we have, um, really, really great word of mouth, um, viral growth, but, um, more and more finding uh, new customers through Instagram and Facebook, which we have um, a, a pretty cool way of reaching our customers because oftentimes if women become engaged, they change their relationship status on, on Facebook. And so they're easy to find. Um, also, especially newly engaged women love content. They want to like, uh, you know, read all of the wedding blogs and browse Pinterest for hours. And so we're, we're working a lot on how, um, we can make our uh, digital experience really fun and um, easy to browse tons and tons of um, potential dresses and then also real dresses. So our Instagram account is just chock full of um, women, real women, not models on the happiest day of their life with our product being the the centerpiece on the bride. It's like, it's, it's a really cool evergreen kind of content machine too, because we just get uh, every day we get uh, dozens of you know new photos or new new wedding photos from uh, women who have professional hair and professional makeup and professional photography on this very happy day and it's like just really easy Perfect. to feed that back to to potential customers to show you know the the breadth and depth of our um, our customers and customer types and body types and also. Uh, design. And I, I think it's a really uh, cool way to sh- uh, communicate our, our value pro- proposition to, to um, potential brides. Yeah, that definitely makes it much easier. How do you think about uh, encouraging the brides to share that not only with you, but also on their socials? Because I could see some people being hesitant to show where they got their dress from, because then everyone knows about it. And, you know, it's not as special and fancy. I've just seen this um, hesitancy and brides to tell you like, Hey, I got this, you know, bracelet from here and this uh, dress from here. And here's where I got my veil from. seems like it's kind of an industry or at least a group of people that sometimes don't always want to share that. Have you experienced that? Yeah, it's, it's funny. And this is another funny thing with, um, bridal. We, I mean, we've never developed, uh, an influencer strategy. We've never had to, to work hard or like twist a bride's arm to post pictures because it's almost, you know, always a really, really like happy customer experience. Brides are shouting it from the rooftops. They, especially brides that had frustrations, um, finding a dress that they wanted and then discovered us. They want to tell their friends about it. They want to help, um, future brides, uh, know about us, which is just super cool. And I, I think, you know, it's something that we've worked really hard to develop because again, this, this idea of having, um, a lot of trust, uh, but we've earned that by going above and beyond to make sure our, um, original customers were advocates for our brand by delivering a really, really amazing experience and a really, really beautiful, perfect dress. And so it, um, it, it still amazes me how much brides love to share about their experience. It's, it's funny also because um, oftentimes the wedding dress is a secret, especially to the fiance. So yep. women will go as far as um, posting on their Instagram stories 
their uh, sketch for their um, custom dress, but then we'll scribble out so you can't quite see what the dress looks like, but they still want to <laughs> post the fact that yeah. they are so excited about getting their sketch, even though you can't even oh see gosh. it. It's pretty amazing. That's great. Yeah, that's really awesome. I'm sure also having that relationship with them. I mean, by the time they get to the very end, I'm sure they feel very connected with you and the stylists and your team. Oh, we've had stylists invited to so many weddings. Like (laughs) it it definitely is a relationship that is, um, I think, pretty unique. I think other companies would kill for this uh, Mm -hmm. type of loyalty. We have our our stylists, we joke, get presents all the time, cupcakes and flowers and things delivered to the office because the bride was just so delighted um, with our experience, which is so cool. That's like, it's, um, you know, it's, it's really empowering, I think, to know that, uh, that you've had a difference in what, what should be the most like, you know, fun, enjoyable time in a woman's life. And unfortunately, oftentimes it's super stressful. So I think just having an ally through that and then really wowing her with the delivery of the dress is the experience that we want to deliver every time. Yeah. I think a lot of brands would kill for that kind of relationship. And it's just a really good reminder of how important it is as a lot of companies are either coming online or moving more to direct to consumer that keeping those relationships, even if they're virtual, is super important to get that trust and to make sure it's even after the sale, you have champions who are talking about your brand and wanting to send more people your way. Because like you said, word of mouth is key. Absolutely. And that that becomes um, something very defensible as well, uh, yep. more so than a cool brand or you know potentially even even those tech and operational differentiators having customers that are are singing your praises is um you know and and having that community of advocates is something that we really really want to keep building. And that's great. So are there any digital e-commerce trends or patterns that you're really excited about or that you see coming down the pike? Yeah, I think um and I I'm biased of course, but um I think the idea of personalization and customization is so, so key. Um, and I love uh, other brands that are uh, tackling that as well, like like Stitch Fix. Um, I also think the idea of vertical integration and being really involved in your supply chain has popped up. And I'm um, a supply chain nerd, so I, I always appreciate other companies um, taking action there as well. So the some of the razor um, companies, uh, one of them purchased an actual uh, like razor factory in Germany, um, and I, I was just uh, talking with the founder of House, which is a new like uh, liquor brand yeah. direct to consumer. I just had them on the show. Oh, amazing! Yeah, Helena, yeah. yeah, she came Helena's on. Helena's awesome, and um, you know, I, I think. There is a lot of innovation happening right now in terms of the the front end, which the customers experience how you're interacting with brands um, in a digital way versus in a physical store. But I think um, the innovation from a supply chain side will also be really, really important for um, brands to differentiate, especially if they're making things in a new way. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm feeling good about our investment in, in time and resources with uh, developing really a really strong supply chain presence. Um, and I'm hoping it'll, you know, benefit us long term. That's great. Are there any channels like digital channels that you guys are looking into to expand to, um, whether it's, you know, I know a couple brands we've talked to have talked about TikTok, which people laugh when I say that, but I mean, they've said that they've had great success on there. Is there any areas where you're seeing success that maybe others aren't trying out right now? 
Oh, it's, yeah, it's funny you bring up TikTok because <laughs> months ago I would not have even really known what that was. Um, TikTok is going to be very important for brands. We had uh, a woman post um, just a quick little video around like, hey guys, if you are um, bored in quarantine, like check out this website, you can visualize your own dress. I'm not even engaged, but it's um, pretty cool. It was something that's literally that simple. Mm -hmm. Her post went viral. We had over 200,000 people sign up in one day last week or about a week and a half ago crashed our website. Our engineers were working till four in the morning trying to get, you know, our our capacity back to to where we could actually serve our our customers just bombarded with TikTok traffic. So it was, you know, half the team trying to fix the website issues and then half the team just trying to figure out what what TikTok was (laughs) and, you know, quickly getting up a a corporate account. And yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, I just saw a stat um, this week that they were the fastest social um, media company to get to a billion users. It's Mm -hmm. just amazing what they've built and, and the speed at which they've built it. And I think it, it, it's um, something for sure that uh, leaders of brands will need to keep an eye on just given um, how, how viral it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know people are still questioning how many of the users are real versus not, but I brought this up in a team meeting with my team. I'm like, we should try out TikTok. One, it looks fun. And two, I've actually heard of quite a few brands saying, you know, that it's working well. And my entire team laughed at me and said no. So well, they will be eating their words now. I think I agree. <laughs> you <ahead> of the <laughs> I agree. So 200,000 signups, crashed your website. That's a great segue into building platforms for e-commerce. How are you thinking now about, I mean, it sounds like you could be at a place where, you know, you're maybe outgrowing the platform or you're experiencing, you know, some friction because you guys are growing and you're going to have, you know, large spikes in uh, volume coming your way. How are you thinking about developing a platform that fits you where you are now and where you're headed? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a balance of building a robust tech foundation and serving up an experience that customers really want. And um, it it has to be a balance of both of those. And being able to tie any possible um, design element and um, having logic built into it to not uh, show a sketch to a customer of a dress that can't be created. We worked really, really hard to do that. That being said, it's a big load on, um, you know, on our, on our tech. And so we're thinking about ways to, um, from a technology perspective, how do we continue to like have a really cool mind reading type of experience, but also be able to potentially, um, you know, surge to, to have sketches available for hundreds of thousands of people in one day. And um, one thing that we're building right now is um, you, you mentioned it earlier, there are a number of different types of brides that come. So some brides come in and are like me and that they have an idea of exactly what they want and having a, a very uh, mind reading survey experience works really well for that type of customer. But where we're moving to right now and um, the the team's building a, a brand new browsing experience that should be online just hopefully within the next couple of weeks is this idea of uh, being able to filter down based on a couple different elements and being able to view lots and lots of designs side by side. Um, great. Other e-commerce companies have the same type of experience in terms of um, filtering down based on different you know price ranges or colors or sizes and we're thinking a lot about that and then also building that in a way now with uh, the TikTok uh, 
viral event fresh in our minds with, with a way that we can um, access our amazing um, data and, and logic that we've worked really hard to build, but also be able to have an easy load on our, our servers to be able to you know, show this to, to hundreds of thousands of people at the same time. Yeah, that that's great. I was actually just thinking when thinking through your business model of like, I'm probably the consumer that wants to, like, I don't know what I want until I see it. So I would probably instead want to come in and be able to see different designs, maybe on models that kind of look like me. So then I can yep. choose it that way. Because yeah, if someone were to say, hey, Stephanie, design your own wedding dress, I'd be like, uh, it's white. That's all I got. So <laughs> it's a big task. Yeah, for sure. We actually, um, we just created this algorithm within the last couple of months um, called our, it's called a similar dresses algorithm, which takes all of these, I think we have millions of photos now at this point of um, real women, real weddings, real dresses, real anomaly dresses. And based on the sketch that you get served up, um, you can see uh, what that dress would look like on women that look similar to you. It's um, if if you've used Rent the Runway, which I'm a big user consumer of Rent the Runway, you can see what does this look like on a woman that looks like me, um, which I think is really helpful in terms of addressing that question around um, you know like the the visualization and like what is this what is this actually going to look like? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm excited to hear how that goes. How are you thinking about measuring performance when you have these two different types of models now? And like, how do you think through, like, is our website working? Is it converting well? Um, yeah, what's your process around that? Yeah, well, our conversion tanked, as you can imagine, just within the last couple of days. It was really exciting to see the site traffic and just the number of sketches um, being generated and just, I think, overall excitement, which isn't quantitative, but just the, the qualitative excitement and virality around the, the promise of what we're building was really, really exciting. Um, as, as far as like our KPIs, it's really just around, um, uh, around growth. It's like that we have a lot of interest. We need to make sure we're converting that interest into real, uh, real purchases and real dresses being made with anomalies. So that takes um, a little bit more time than that initial, um, you know, initial visit to our site to get uh, a sketch. And what we really look is the conversion of um, interactions with stylists. So having um, our process right now is that you pay a small design deposit. So uh, $29 to be able to uh, connect with the stylist and talk through the design and talk about pros and cons and iterate the sketch to be absolutely perfect. And then um, the the decision to move forward with Anomaly is after that call. And so that's what we're really, really focused on is just um, making sure that we've, we're converting the interest from our, our cool tech and our cool website experience to actual um, actual dresses. And that's that's where, you know, we're, we're growing a lot right now too, which is um, exciting. It's uh, The conversion is not looking good right now but um, temporary, temporary in terms of all the tiktokers but um that that's where the the rubber hits the road in terms of um like dresses actually going to the factory that's awesome have you seen any hesitancy with paying that 29 dollars fee like have you seen you know traffic come there and kind of hover a bit and be like eh, i'm not so sure and then people bounce because they're you know they don't want to pay something right up front and have you thought about maybe like a quick freemium model or maybe they you know have a stylist for a couple minutes or would that kind of ruin the business model of making it, you know, super personal and a relationship? Yeah, we've, we've thought about this a lot and this actually is um, something that we're talking about as a team quite a bit right now is, um, is $29 too high? Is it too low? We want 
to show brides. I think having a, a, a posture of confidence in our process and um, that this is a good value is really important. And we've um, adjusted the price and also if it's refundable or not. And then also having um, the calls be completely free or not. Um, it's something that we're, we're looking at really closely and just continue to listen to what our customers like. And um, we've got enough of a, a growth team set up now where we can um, measure that quantitatively rather than just kind of viewing it qualitatively. So yeah, it's, it's a great question and something that we're thinking about a lot. What, what we, what we want to communicate is, is um, speaking with a stylist is important and absolutely necessary before you purchase the dress. This is not something, a typical e-commerce experience where you, you know, drop something into your cart and purchase it. This is your wedding dress. And so um, making sure that we're, uh, delivering a really uh, a really positive, high quality customer experience, and making sure brides are feeling good before they make that that final decision is important. And the exact makeup has changed a little bit over time, and probably will continue to change over time, especially as we add more and more features to our website. Um, but yeah, it's it's an exciting challenge that we're we're working on every day. Yeah, yeah, I like the idea too of kind of sticking with your guns to keep that quality high. I know when I was looking through your website and you were mentioning transparency earlier, but you have a whole section where it says, can I get my you know wedding dress in six months? And I still want a custom. And at one point you're like, no, you can't do this, this and this. Yep. But if it's seven months, yes, we can do it for you. Eight months, here's what we can do for you. And I thought that was really um, yeah, smart to just show like, here's our boundaries and here's what we can and can't do. So, you know, let's just set expectations up front. And same with that stylist fee. It's like, here's how we work. And if you want it to go well, like this is the process where we see works best right now. Yeah. And what's great is we've got a couple years under our belt now and have made thousands and thousands of dresses. So we, we know what's best, which um, in the early days, I think we're a little apologetic and wanted to be super flexible. But now we, we, have, we have a lot of confidence in our process as it stands right now. Um, another place that shows up is the pricing of the actual dress. Um, you know, a, a lot of brides come to us with uh, a tight budget for their wedding, rightfully so. Weddings are really expensive. And so being able to talk through with the stylist, um, you know, what what are the big price drivers of a dress? So for us, it's if there's hand beading. That takes a really long time and it's really expensive and adds a lot of cost to the, uh, to the dress. And so being able to talk to a stylist about how to um, you know, bring in elements of, of sparkle with, with less expensive um, elements is, uh, you know, I think something that really appeals to brides. Yeah, that's great. So we have a couple minutes left and I want to jump into the lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. It's where I ask you a quick question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are okay. you ready, Leslie? I am. <laughs> All right. What is up next for your travel destinations? Any factories you're visiting? Where are you headed? Yeah, well, right now, um, everything is still locked down for quarantine. So it is really um, hard to think too far in the future. I mean, in 2017, when we were starting this company, I was in China pretty much half the year. I think it was like every, every month I was out there. So wow. thankfully, we've got an amazing team um, on the ground. So I'm not having to travel out there as much. And uh, it, it'll be more traveling to our Scottsdale, Arizona office to um, chat with our, our stylists and customer experience. So that's um, that's taking much more of my time now versus uh, to China in the, in the old days. Yeah, very cool. Uh, what kind of hobbies do you have or ones that you have on the map that you want to try out? 
Um, almost none, I would say, which <laughs> work, I don't work, know work. if this is the most healthy answer, but, um, you know, starting a company and building a company is all consuming, yes. um, which, which I love that that was exactly what I wanted. And, um, that's what I'm dedicating my life to right now. Um, my husband also is my co-founder, which is crazy. So we, similar. we don't have a personal <laughs> life, but that's, yep. that's what we want right now. And we love, um, you know, we love what we're building and it still remains exciting and cool and our, our biggest, our biggest hobby for sure. <laughs> yep. Completely agree on this side too. Uh, what's up next on your reading list or podcast list? Oh, I'm just finishing a book called, um, the upside of stress, which is super fascinating. It's a Stanford um, PhD researcher. She had done a ton of research on um, on how stress um, can impact people's health in a negative way. But what she started uncovering is that it was believing that stress is bad for your health is what was making people unhealthy. And so the, the book is all around how you can stress isn't going to go away, especially um, in meaningful lives or meaningful parts of your life. It, stress represents, you know, that you care about something and something is important. So she has really practical tips for how to hone and, um, you know, manage stress in a way that helps, which is, you know, it, focus and energy and uh, care in what you're stressed about, which I'm really, really enjoying reading that and would highly recommend it. That sounds like a good one. I will have to check that out too. All right. And the last, a little bit harder of a question, what's one thing that will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Ooh, I mean, I have to say right now, COVID is going to really, really upend retail. I, I wonder a lot about, with retail essentially being completely shut down in the US right now, I wonder about if there are decisions being made um, at both uh, you know, startup companies and large companies about what um, value they're getting out of their stores. And there are a lot of really expensive components of having a physical presence. And uh, we're benefiting from the value of having a digital experience in terms of the, the data and the personalization and um, delivering value to, the, to our customers. And I, I wonder if we're just going to see a lot fewer stores. There, it's probably a pendulum and will swing another way in the future. But I, yeah, I just have to imagine um, that a lot, a lot of stores are going to be closed once, um, once the economy opens up and once quarantine's over. Um, that, that's, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that's a great answer. Well, Leslie, it's been a blast having you on the show. Um, yeah, good luck with everything and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.